Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Johnny Whitlam has been a Berlin tour guide since 2010. We met via social media after I noticed his great videos describing well-known and lesser-known 20th century historical locations in Berlin. We discussed doing an episode to help you see Cold War Berlin sites without needing a tour guide, and this episode is the result. However, if you'd like a personal tour, do check out Johnny's tours on the link in the episode information. Johnny is keen to share Berlin's amazing history with everyone and he has generously put together the ultimate guide to Cold War Berlin, which includes an amazing Google map of 75 Cold War sites in Berlin. Now, despite the name, this list is not exhaustive and we'd welcome suggestions for anything you think we may have missed. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, this is Tree from Berlin. I decided to support Cold War Conversations with a monthly subscription for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I really enjoyed the podcast. We moved to Berlin as we were really interested in Cold War history and it was a good to live in the city with lots of constant reminders of it. And secondly, I believe it's so important and interesting to hear these stories from that period, good and bad. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Johnny Whitlam to our Cold War conversation. Uh, kind of inspired by my Erasmus semester in Copenhagen, I would go live in Europe somewhere for six months. So Berlin for six months was the plan. I arrived November 2010. My interest in history began actually around the same time, like a year or two before in my second year of uh, university. So I went to Newcastle, I studied politics. I had an East German lecturer and, you know, being what 19 years old, I didn't think to write down her name or stay in contact. But she was telling us about life in East Germany, which to a 19-year-old was this distant past. And, you know, wow, uh, didn't really think that I'm talking to somebody who really 
has lived through history. And I really, I really wish I could talk to her now because that was the beginning of like, okay, what, what was the other, what was the Iron Curtain? What was the other side? Why does my dad call these countries new countries, right, to him? And so, yeah, I got to Berlin, interviewed to be a tour guide within 24 hours, which says probably more about the company that I started working with than it does about anything else. And their, their stipulation was, can you work Christmas Day and New Year's Day? And I said, yeah, sure. I just want to live here. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And so how, how long have you been a tour guide in Berlin now since 2010? In some form since 2010. So I did it for five years full time. Seven years I uh, was a manager um, of, a, of a larger agency, which I quit to take a management job at a tech company and discovered that what I am good at is being outside talking about history. <laughs> so I've been self-employed now for the last uh, six months, but I was self-employed way back in 2010 as well. So it's kind of coming back, but a bit more professional and a lot older. You're doing a, a great job in terms of publicizing the uh, the city and the sites. So if I was coming to Berlin, I mean, what what would be the must-see sites in the center if I'm just limited to a few days in Berlin and I want to see Cold War? Yeah. So I think for the center, assuming that you're coming for the first time, as as most people are, uh, I think the number one Cold War site is the um, least pleasing, let's say, uh, the most underwhelming, which is Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, so everybody wants to go there. I have a feeling that it's, um, how can I put this, considered important historically because the name sounds cool. Uh, because I, when I talk about the history there, it's more about how interesting it could have been rather than how interesting it necessarily was. But just to just to kind of set people's expectations visiting Checkpoint Charlie for the first time, it's uh, crossroads, and nothing there is the original. There's a lot of like souvenir shops. Uh, there is a reproduction of the "You are entering the American sector" sign, um, and just behind it, on either side, uh, there's a KFC and a McDonald's, which is makes for quite the photo. But there are a couple of good things you can do at Checkpoint Charlie. So there's the Berlin Wall panorama. It's hard to explain, but it's kind of like a photograph, kind of like a computer uh, image, like. Monta photo montage thing. Uh, it has a day and night system. It's a three-story tall, completely circular image of the Berlin Wall. And you climb up and it's like you're standing in West Berlin looking over the wall. And then there's also a free exhibition outside there. It does two things. Firstly, it gives you an overview of like major Cold War moments. Inside of the courtyard where it is, still for free, is in chronological order the entire history of Checkpoint Charlie. So you see it grow from just crossroads to 10 lanes wide in East Germany, bringing in all of this traffic, giving everybody a talking to. So I think I wouldn't plan a day around visiting Checkpoint Charlie. I would plan one hour, um, which then leaves you to go and see more things. So where else would you uh, recommend? I guess, you know, what people are always going to want to see is some of the Berlin Wall. So what what would be the best location to get a feel as to what it was like when the wall was up? There's loads of little bits of the wall around if you know where to look. There are three that are really kind of on the map as a tourist. So there's one just next to Checkpoint Charlie, uh, which is, it's just a big gray bit of wall. You know, there's hardly a sign or an exhibition there. There is the East Side Gallery, which is the one that people think of when they think of the Berlin Wall, which is covered in all the paintings. So I find that just very difficult to visit. It's very busy. There's not a lot of room. So the best one is um, 
really the Berlin Wall Memorial up at Bernauer Straße. And I always tell people that's um, it's essentially a, a free open-air museum. Uh, may as well be called Berlin Wall Memorial and Museum. There's so much information there. And because it's Cold War history, there's also photographs. And you know, on the side of buildings, there's, fo- there's um, painted versions of photos, but of the exact location and how you know you can see this entire street was the death strip where you can read these what you can do is you can read a lot of personal stories uh which i find is always more engaging than big picture and i tend to be a big picture person when i'm talking on my tours and if you can find those little stories there that's that's really quite interesting um there's a photo wall of um 136 victims of the berlin wall uh since that was built they've actually found more um and because of the design they can't really add to it but uh, when, when I take people there, I tell them about the lives of some of the people, uh, people that you might know, uh, Ida Siegmann, the first person to die at the Berlin Wall, um, Gunter Litvin, first person to be shot, uh, baby Holger, who was sadly suffocated by, by his mother while she was trying to escape completely accidentally. It's a really terrible story. Uh, going all the way up to yeah, uh, 1989, the most impressive thing to really get the idea of it is... Uh, there's a tower you can go up. And again, this is all free. The tower's about five stories. And you can imagine the, the joyous groan teenagers uh, make when I tell them we're going to go up there. But from the top, you get a view down onto not just the Berlin Wall that you think of when you think of the wall. They've built the second wall, the Hinterland Mauer, the one that the East Germans would have seen. And you get an idea of the space in between. There's a guard tower there. They haven't fully reconstructed the death strip. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if that's a plan down the line. But it again, it gives you an idea of the real size of of, of the thing. I guess it's uh, it's big and small at the same time, right? This gap from one side of the street to the other, where there were shoot to kill orders, and you know, just completely different lives, two different countries, two different ideas, but the same city. It's yeah, it's a it's a fascinating place to go to, and they've done a very good job. I absolutely agree with you. I think it's really clever the way they've shown part of the wall using these iron bars sticking out of the the ground to represent the wall and i think for the uninitiated they think that it was one wall rather than multiple barriers that you would have had to cross if you were trying to you know illegally leave um east berlin and that that uh memorial they've got there where it does show the watchtower and the 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 inner wall and the the wall that was facing West Berlin, I think is is really effective. Now, near there, you've also got the Nord Bahnhof, which architecturally is one of my favourite stations because it's got all that lovely Gothic script signage in it. And they've got, they've got a really interesting exhibition in there, haven't they? It's not huge, but I found it fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a great exhibition. It's somewhere I gladly take my groups as well. So you're right. Usually when I arrive in the station, yeah, you notice this Gothic script. And I actually start off by telling people uh, what happened to the station right at the end of the um, Second World War when that tunnel was flooded uh, by German forces to stop the Soviets coming through and then go upstairs. And yeah, like you said, the exhibition is small, but very well done. There's a map that I think quite clearly explains the concept of the ghost stations because Again, you you know, when people think of the wall, you said they think of one wall. Well, people also think of a straight line because you'll see photos of a wall in a straight line. But the Berlin Wall kind of turned all these corners and so on. And of course, the wall had to go underground. Um, and so there's this one train line. Well, there's several, but in this case, there's one where about, let's say, five of the stations ended up in East Berlin and the other 20-odd 
ended up in West Berlin. And so, yeah, the deal was made to allow uh, West German trains to keep going through. And as a result, there's a place where people could try to escape. And so the small exhibition they have inside of that is yeah about some of these uh, escape stories. There's one that to me always sounds like it should be a Monty Python sketch. There's uh, someone who was constructing the wall beneath the ground, bricklayer, I suppose, and um, he just runs away. And so they send a guard to go and find him, and then the guard doesn't come back. So they send a guard to go and find him, and he doesn't come back. And then they're like, okay, we'll just stop. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I, d- I remember riding through those ghost stations when I visited Berlin in, it was June 89. Wow. Um, and I probably rode that line about 10 times because I was just fascinated by the fact that you could get on an underground train and effectively pass underneath another country mm. and then come out the other side. And the trains used to slow as they went through the stations. And the stations almost looked like time capsules. If you looked, you know, they weren't very well lit, but you could see posters from 1960s from when they were sealed up. Um, I don't think I ever saw any guards on the on the platform, but I distinctly remember just riding this uh, this line backwards and forwards. And then you could get out at Friedrichstrasse and change onto another underground line whilst still underneath this other country um it was it was the most bizarre concept but one of the things that has just kept me eternally fascinated about you know the division of berlin and the complications that were there so we've done checkpoints yeah go on Uh, you've actually conveniently led me to one of the next sites that i think people should really see in the center of town uh that i think is a little it's lesser known it's a state-run museum called the Tränenpalast, or the Palace of Tears. And so at Friedrichstrasse Station, as you said, as a West Berliner, hey, you could change to a different train. But in some circumstances, some years, different times, you could head upstairs and exit into a different country, meaning you had to go through passport control. And so there was a building that, um, off the top of my head, it must have been built in the 1960s. It's got a slugged roof. And inside of there, there's a free museum opened just about 10 years ago. And... It's it's really small, but it's very, very well done. And I think, again, for, I would say, for Cold War history nerds, but also if you're bringing friends, partner, whoever, who are tangentially interested because they're in Berlin, I think they would like it too. You can go through some of the original like little gates where, as a, as a West German, you would go past the East German, I guess, police. And... One thing that I like to point out is how high up they were. So they're really looking down on you. So there's this idea that as a Westerner, you're entering a place where they're telling you not to mess around, right? They're telling you you're being you're being somehow watched. But as a Westerner, there's one thing that I thought was very interesting in that. Uh, they have newsreels. So there's this like, tiny little cinema thing you can walk into. And they show these news clips um, uh, from various years uh, in the same news story as it was presented in the East and the West. And of course, everyone tends to think of themselves as the good guys, right? And I was quite interested to see how biased the Western, the language was in the Western news as well as the East, right? You kind of expect it from the East with, you know, the the party, they are always right kind of uh, song. But it was certainly, certainly the case on both sides. Yeah, again, because it's a state museum, that one's uh, totally free. There's a fairly um, strict rule with lockers and putting all bags in lockers. And if you don't have a one euro coin, you get a stern look. But uh then they give you a little plastic chip instead and everything is all right. (laughs) 
the train in Palace actually is, you're right, it is good because I remember going through those barriers that you mentioned there. And what they used to do is you'd go in and you're right, the border guard was higher than you, but behind you, the door would lock and in front of you was a locked door. So you were in this, I guess if you had claustrophobia, it wouldn't have been particularly good, but basically you're facing this border guard who's higher than you he's looking down he's looking at your passport but also there's a mirror high up behind you so they can see whether you're hiding anything behind your back i distinctly remember the border crossings both checkpoint charlie and friedrichstrasse as being the most nervy ones i've ever Mm -hmm. um been through i was probably just unduly worried but obviously if you watch too many spy movies and things like that then uh, your imagination can run right but no that's a great great recommendation so what's next on the uh the must-see list in uh central berlin we're doing a little a little tour there right so from checkpoint charlie you can easily get up to the berlin wall memorial now you're down to friedrichstrasse so from there i think we have to mention that the brandenburg gate is near to friedrichstrasse but mentioning the brandenburg gate on the list of things to see is a bit blase isn't it uh so well i assume you'll have done that anyway and um from friedrichstrasse i would go over to alexanderplatz and it is, it is quite cool and cute is the uh, world clock. So out on the big big square where, I mean, it's a kind of modern shopping area today. Actually, it's a giant construction site today. And there's like electronic stores and, uh, and um, DM, a German drugstore, go buy some shampoo, something like that. Uh, but the, the old world clock is still there. And yeah, one of the reasons I like to point it out is, I mean, it's cool. It's unique. It's very, we see a lot of modern architecture after the war in both East and West Germany. And a lot of the thinking behind it is, I mean, sometimes it's just because new construction techniques were cheap, but with prestige things like this, they wanted to kind of say, this is us. It's called the world clock because you can see the time all over the world and the whole thing spins round. But it also brings to light that, I mean, going back to Marx, communism is supposed to be a world ideology, right? I think he called capitalism the fourth stage of social evolution or something and then and then uh, communism was the fifth and so you see this a lot in uh, in soviet imagery as well of course uh you know there's always an image of a, of a globe and this idea not necessarily of a violent takeover but that we're waiting for the rest rest of the world to catch up and it's still like a really well-known meeting point today like wherever you live whatever kind of uh town i come from a small village but wherever you are there's always a oh i'll meet you by the blah and um, yeah, the world clock is still one of those things. And there's a really nice photograph you can get when you're looking towards the train station. You can then see the, the TV tower looming over it, which again, first time is in Berlin, Cold War thing to see, definitely uh, the TV tower, which is um, yeah from 1969. And it just looks cool. Every, you know, every big city has a big tower. I think Berlin's has, uh, Berlin has the best looking one. I'm biased, but uh, that's my opinion. Yeah, the... Um... The, the TV tower is spectacular. I think during the Cold War, some people called it the uh, the Pope's Revenge because uh, if the sun shone, you'd get a cross no matter which uh, side you, you were looking at. And I think the East Germans made a lot of efforts to try and reduce the glare, but still... To no, to no effect. You can still see it appear today. So on a sunny day, sun's got to be at the right angle for it to like, really have the exact proportions of a Christian cross, yeah. I'd say visiting the tower is fun in that you've, whoever you are listening, you've probably been up a tower before. Um, and so it's, it's fun. 
for sure. Uh, I think booking in for breakfast or, or planning to uh, have a drink or so at the bar is quite nice, but uh, up to you, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did I did go up there in, in 89 and it was interesting because you could see the wall and you could see the death strip from up there. And I, and I always find the, the world clock you mentioned, the sort of irony that it was showing times in places that most of the population would ordinarily never get the chance to uh, visit. But uh, no, so great locations there. And I guess that, that sort of uh, going to Alexanderplatz, you've also got some great examples of communist architecture around there. I mean, the TV tower is, is one example of that, but you've got the um, House of the Teachers. Yes, where there is, uh, so on the side of the House of the Teachers, there is a great mural. That's another thing I really like to talk about is that the communists certainly put quite a lot of money and time into public art. Of course, they didn't support uh, artists that they were politically opposed to, so you didn't get a lot of art that really, I suppose, would challenge you. But um, certainly a lot of art that would celebrate the people. So it's not about celebrating heroes or one person in particular. So on the side of the... Um, yeah, House of the Teachers, House des Lehrers. You've got um, yeah, images of of teachers of all different kind of specialists. So you'll have scientists and mathematicians. I think you get what I mean. Uh, uh, when you see it, you'll know like, oh, instantly. From there, that's the beginning of actually quite a lot of communist architecture because there begins the main road out of town to the east to Poland, uh, which was once upon a time back in Nazi Germany would have been Reichstrasse 1, which was where Stalin and Zukov wanted to make sure that they came into Berlin. And, um, you know, they didn't just knock on the door, those fellas. Uh, they destroyed a lot of things on the way. And that means that during the, um, the days of East Germany, they decided to clear out a lot of old buildings, a lot of destroyed buildings, of course, and that's where they made a very, very, very wide road, right? this very 20th century idea um, of having, what, a six- or eight-lane road in the middle of town, which immediately after the war was named after Stalin, right? Stalin Alley, all the way up until the 1960s. Um, and so that immediate part next to Alexanderplatz, that was built up in the 60s, and and you can tell it's kind of, Khrushchev time, uh, what Khrushchev said, what was it? Um, buildings need to be bigger, cheaper, and quicker. Something along those lines, right? And you can really see that. And I understand that with how much uh, the country was destroyed. But as you get a bit further away, you you start to hit this really nice Moscow-style architecture at Strasberger Platz. Um, and that begins when people talk about Karl Marx Allee, after it was renamed, uh, after Karl Marx in the 1960s. That's what people are thinking of, starting at Strasberger Platz and these just very, very, very grand buildings. Actually, um, when I first visited Berlin, summer of 2010, I was blown away when I saw that street on a, on a tour. It is the very first thing I visited when I moved there. So I remember it was November 2010, and I went for a walk down this street taking photos. And back then, uh, a lot of the buildings still hadn't been fixed up. There were tiles missing. It was kind of falling apart. Nowadays, it's fixed up, which, you know, for photographs, it's not quite as good, but for the people living there, I'm sure it's fantastic. It's difficult to imagine, you know, the street was used for parades. Khrushchev paraded down there, right? It's where they used to do the anniversary of the formation of the of the GDR parades uh, on there. And so you can kind of tell, but these days it's, you know, 
There's a couple of trees, things are a little bit more, more obscured. But yeah, if you really want to get a feel for Cold War East Berlin, I think that's, it's a good place, but it's a quite atypical place because you know they had this message of we're going to build these big grand buildings and then they didn't, right? They built just one street of them and then everything else. And you'll know when you see them, you'll understand why they had to be cheaper. I've had the fortune of going inside a couple of the apartments there and they are enviable. <laughs> yes, yeah. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I mean, I, I remember when I was in East Berlin in the 1980s, sort of um, Unter den Linden and that area was sort of like the showcase. But if you walked off a couple of streets away from those main streets, it was like World War II had finished yesterday. They were pockmarked buildings, really um, poorly maintained buildings as well, and, and sort of had a, a sort of feel of uh, dereliction about them now are there any notable locations to look at along uh karl marx is it still it's still called karl marx alley isn't it still called karl marx alley yeah uh so germany has a rule um you can still name something after someone if they weren't part of an evil totalitarian government so we can still have things named after ernst talman he was a communist leader but he was uh sadly killed in a concentration camp we can have karl marx because i think i think marx said i don't know what a marxist is right um, so that's that's the rule. So still called Karl Marx. Interestingly, there is a Karl Marx Strasse in West Berlin as well. But yeah, for interesting things to see along Karl Marx. So if you're walking from Alexanderplatz, from the TV tower, let's say, um, that's the more modern architecture side of things. So the first two things that I think you would come across next to an U-Bahn station called Schillingstrasse. On one side, you have uh, Kino International, which is... Um, a really, really cool cinema that was used to show premieres in East Germany. And uh, they would, of course, make sure that the Politburo was there or the leadership were there. And then after the premiere, they would be shuffled quite literally across the road, just the other side of the road where you can still see Cafe in Moscow, uh, which apparently inside used to be fantastic. There were several different bars and things named after different countries in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, these days, the building is in use, but it's not really open to the public. But seeing it from the outside is still great. There's um, a little model, uh, a one-to-one size model of Sputnik on the top. And there's a really, really, really amazing um, mosaic, which is kind of obs obscured. You have to go right up close to it. But again, it shows you these principles that may not have always been lived, but principles of of peace. And I think, you know, it's the 1960s. There's, just, there's a certain optimism. That the future is uh, that the future is here as well, and if you keep walking down the street from there, yeah, you go past um, a couple more things. Uh, there's a bust of Karl Marx. There's a plaque from Wilhelm Pieck, who was the 
one and only East German president who who laid the groundstone of the first building, I believe, or broke the ground or something. Um, then you get to a cafe. Uh, so you go past an empty spot, then you get to a place called Cafe Zibilla, where you can have the pleasure of seeing half of Stalin's mustache and one of his ears from a statue that was supposed to be surreptitiously removed overnight uh, back in the 60s. Um, but some naughty East Germans stole one of his ears and half of his mustache. Um, and then at the very end, you'll get to two towers that are supposed to be an echo of, of two towers in the middle of town that were destroyed, two churches that were later rebuilt in the 70s. And that's a, a square called Frankfurter Tor. Um, and I should say at Frankfurter Tor is where you can actually go into part of one of these buildings and, and kind of get a feel for what it's like. I have a feeling that since we're both from the UK, we've probably got a lot of British listeners, so they might be disappointed to hear that it's a brew dog now. Uh, but it used to be a McDonald's, so I think it's a step up. Um, but you can still see some of the original 50s fixtures and fittings in there and get a nice pint. So win-win for me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, we, we've sort of moved a little bit further afield from cent- central Berlin. I guess one, one of the places that I always like to go to is Treptower Park, which is the big Soviet cemetery that was um, set up after the end of World War II, which I think is just a very powerful symbol of how the Russians felt about their sacrifices in, in World War II. Yeah, it's, uh, I actually live nearby. It's, um, so it's a place I've been to probably more times than most people uh, that live here. Um, it is always fascinating to me. So I've been there all times of year. Uh, you very kindly uh, asked asked your uh, Twitter audience for some some suggestions before we came here, and um, one of your Twitter followers actually said, "Hey, that's a place you should really visit." He said specifically in the in the winter, as I think it casts these images of of uh, Moscow and Russia. And certainly, visiting in the winter is amazing, but I've been there all times of year, and it's it's always impressive. So, just the way they've designed it is fantastic. You. Whichever side you come into, there's two gates. Whichever one you come into, you, you're led up a, a short walkway uh, to a statue. So you think that that's everything at first. It's just a statue, but she's facing um, to one side. So depending on which way you're coming in, the left or the right. And the statue is supposed to represent Mother Russia, and she is very sad because millions, millions of Soviets have died uh, during the Second World War. And as you get there, you turn to face the direction she is, and you'll see these two great big red marble structures with uh, statues of Soviet soldiers holding machine guns at the bottom, but they're, they're kind of kneeling their heads about and they're framing a statue very far away in the distance. Um, a statue of, um, well, the model was a man named uh, Nikolai Mazalov. And you walk slightly uphill to get to these two red structures. And you're then standing on top of this of this great big open area and you have to walk past all of these white sarcophagi that um, kind of tell you the story of World War II um, uh, from the perspective of a certain Mr. J. Stalin, which people often find quite surprising that there are quotes from Stalin like just on public display in Berlin. Actually, if you look at the information boards around the site, there are photographs of um, Mr. V. Putin as well when he visited about 20 years ago. Just, it's quite a strange thing to see, to be honest. Anyway, you walk past all of these and then you get to the, the foot of the statue, which is, I must be about 30 or 40 steps to get up there and people leave flowers and little bottles of vodka and things. 
Um, but the statue is uh, filled with what I call Soviet subtlety. So the whole site is about the size of a football pitch, but then there's this 12-meter-tall statue of a Soviet soldier carrying a giant sword, for some reason, uh, in one hand. He's got a German child in his other hand, so it's representing the future, right? It's also telling the true story of how he rescued a child in the uh, Battle of Berlin. But with his left foot, he's stamping on a swastika, just in case you forgot how the war ended, right? It's really like stamping out fascism forever. So whilst I find it kind of a comedic place in that sense for its for its lack of subtlety, I do think it's also it's a very powerful place and a very moving place. Um, and something that, again, from a Western perspective is often overlooked, you know, just how many millions of these, mostly young men, of course, were just, were just sent, sent to their deaths. It is a powerful place. I think not far from there, there's um, a watchtower as well, isn't there? Uh, is that a bit is. of a trek yes. from there or not? I can't remember. Um, it is a bit of a trek from there, but you'd be going in um, in the direction of West Berlin, of Kreuzberg, quite a good... So I'm thinking in terms of being a tourist here, you'd be going exactly to, if you Google Kreuzberg, like that bit, mm -hmm. the bit that's all kind of uh, cool and covered in graffiti and fun. And just before you get there, of course, you'd be crossing the wall and there is still a watchtower there. In a, in a small park called Schlesischer Busch. Um, that watchtower was open once. I just happened to be walking past it and I went up there and um, my, my then girlfriend was underwhelmed. She said, it's, it's just a small room. And I was like, yes, yes it is. But I think it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, go, sorry, going back to Treptower Park, have you seen that video of two brothers that rescue their third brother who's in east berlin and they fly over the wall in microlites in the late 80s and they land at the back of the trap tower memorial and they videoed the whole thing and the microlites they put red stars on the wings so that any border guard would perhaps think twice about firing at it um <laughs> Because they might be worried it was uh, it was a Soviet plane of some kind. Um, I'll have to find it and send you the uh, the link. But it's it's an incredible um, piece of video. I think it's part of a documentary that I that I saw. But I'll, I'll send it to you. But it would be a great story to tell your um, your people when they um, when they come to uh, Treptower. Another angle for you there. Absolutely. I'm yeah. One of the one of the things I love about this city is after twelve years I still hear new stories. Mm. So we've talked a lot about the east, um, and I think maybe we should see what you can see in West Berlin because sometimes depending on which tour guides you'll talk to, they'll say nothing, um, and I think that's a little bit unfair. Um, perhaps the sites in West Berlin are not quite as wow, big, grand, um, uh, as immediately impressive. Let's say. But uh, yeah, there's there's quite a few things that you can still see over there. I think one of one of the most interesting places for me is the Deutsche Oper, so the German opera in West Berlin, which I like to use, and I don't often get to go there because there's not many other sites that I like to show people nearby. But at the Deutsche Oper, that's where there was the big protest against the Shah, um, visiting Shah from, oh, that would be Iran, is that right? Um, at the end of the 1960s, this protest turned very violent and the police or, or one policeman uh, ended up shooting a man named Benno Onozorg in the back of the head at point blank range and killed him. 
And um, this, I guess, sparked more and more protests uh, at the end of the 60s in West Germany when, uh, for a lot of people, the big question was, who, are our, who were our parents? What did they do? Right? Talking about the 1940s. And um, there is a small memorial there for Onazorg. And I, I suppose this is, I mean, it's certainly how they do it in the movie, right? In the, in the uh, Baden Meinhof movie. This is really seen as one of the beginnings of um, yeah, the West German uh, terrorist group, the Rota Armee Fraktion, uh, confusingly abbreviated as the RAF. I think one of the things I like to try and get across is nowhere, no system, no country is perfect. And uh, sometimes people will ask me, oh, wait, wait, was the West the good one? And I'm like, uh, I mean, I guess. Um, you know, uh, on balance, yeah, sure, but it's not a it's not a black and white issue. And um, another part of West Berlin that I think people should see is the zoo station. And again, speaking of the differences between East and West, zoo station is most famous for, uh, and I mean, this could be a bit of a very heavy topic, but it's most famous for child prostitution in the seventies and eighties, and the story of Christiana F. Um, that was really the main train station of West Berlin, and where people would get out the train and go see the. The church you go to the shopping center and so on but again um is the west the good one when you've got heroin addicted children selling their bodies at a train station right um and i don't mean to bring in an argument of is, if there's a good one or a bad one I, I i just think it's it's more interesting to reflect on both sides one thing that is really cool in uh west berlin is that they <laughs> they started to dig out more urban stations so they made the u7 tunnel which once upon a time, it was one of the longest tunnels in the world. It was in the top 10. is isn't anymore. Um, and they built it kind of following almost um, an existing S-Bahn line because the S-Bahn was controlled by the East. So there was a poster campaign. Uh, kein Finish for Ulbricht, right? Don't buy S-Bahn tickets because you're funding the East. So they would built out the U-Bahn instead. And so the further you go on the U-7 for me, so I used to live at... Um, what in West Berlin would have been the eastern side of it at Hermannplatz. And so going west and traveling then west and north towards the airport, like the further you go, the weirder these stations get. Like they just started throwing in all of these different colors and shapes and things. Um, I think, yeah, for me, because Constanza Straße, uh, U-Bahn station is really, it's a lot of black, red, and yellow even though germans say gold it's definitely yellow um and it's a bit it's a bit weird because you don't often see kind of i guess you don't often see celebrations of the flag in germany and so seeing that in constanza strasse really stands out uh the one that's my favorite is um spandau u-bahn station which it's kind of like if if star trek made german subway stations it's really uh it's kind of hideous, <laughs> but also quite cool. Um, the most famous or most interesting Cold War site in West Berlin for me, though, is um, the Teufelsberg. So, uh, did you visit the Teufelsberg? I didn't. I didn't. That's one of the places I've I've not been to. So, there's no two ways about it. The Teufelsberg looks like a certain part of male anatomy. Um, there's two big balls and one big tower. I don't know what to say. Uh, the whole thing is built on top of a um, 
uh, an artificial hill, uh, what's called a Trummerberg, so a rubble mountain. So all this rubble from World War II piled up there, makes this hill. And they piled up so much rubble that it became the, the tallest elevation in West Berlin. And so it made a, a, for a very good place to open up a spying station. So the, the large bowls I mentioned before are made of, I, I suppose, canvas, they're like canvas domes. And uh, inside the West used uh, microphones, which they could then point over to East Berlin and listen into conversations uh, over on the other side. Uh, we often have this idea with uh, spying that it's that it's a secret, and I mean this is a big tower on top of the biggest hill in the in, in the city, so everybody knew about Teufelsberg. Uh, it was used predominantly by the U.S. but by Brits as well. Um, and yeah, today you can go and visit. So, oh, last I checked, I think it was seven euros. Maybe it's a little bit more these days. That was pre-pandemic. Um, you do a tour of the place. The tour I did was was okay. Did it a few years ago. I mean, you're really there for the view and this sense of wow. Like I didn't think I'd ever be on a in a spy station in the middle of a forest on top of a hill in West Berlin. Um, it's also covered in a lot of art, so they invite artists in and they just they just cover the whole place in in um, murals and graffiti. I've probably been to Berlin about five or six times since my first visit in 1989, and there's always something new to see. It's constantly changing, constantly evolving. Um, and it's obviously massively changed since since I was first there. Um, now, when you, you said Teufelsberg, I wasn't expecting that answer, actually, Johnny. I was thinking you were going to say Glenica Bridge. Oh, yes. So, um, do you know... Hey, if you're if you're listening to this and thinking I would like to go to Berlin and do some Cold War stuff, here's the super nerdy thing to do. Um, you have to get out at a station. I think it's Nicolas. It's there's a university there, and you walk the long way to the bridge. This is quite a long walk, but you walk through um, what used to be a district built for the movie stars in the 1920s, and there's a street there where three men used to live for two weeks each. Um, all at the same time, which was um, Truman, uh, Stalin, and then Churchill slash Attlee. Um, and you keep following that street, and eventually you'll come to what looks like a, a small village on the other side of a bridge. That was actually an East German exclave in West Berlin, and you can walk right through there. It's all very quaint. And then you get to uh, the Glienica Bridge. Now, this is the way I told you is not the easiest way to get there. Uh, Google is your friend if you want to get there quickly. Um, but my way is like takes you through quite a few interesting Cold War sites. And yeah, the Glienica Bridge is, I guess it's half of a site in West Berlin. And so it's one of those very petty things. When I get there, you kind of I point out to people, like, look at the bridge, you know, it's two different colors. <laughs> Where do you think the border is? And so the Potsdam side, the e the old East German side, they look after it. It's all very well painted and looked after. And uh, you don't have to spend too long in Berlin to realize that it's it's rough around the edges. And so it's quite funny to me that when you get to the Glienica Bridge, it's uh, yeah, still kind of... The, the Berlin side always looks like it could do with a bit of work. Uh, now, the reason the bridge is famous, uh, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners know, but it's where um, a few spy swaps took place. So the first one, I believe, is 10th of February, 62. Uh, thanks to your podcast that I listened to recently, actually one of your very earliest episodes. Um, who, who was the fellow that you interviewed? Gary Powers Jr., so Gary Powers' son. But... Uh, 
I've, if you are going to go and uh, go out to the bridge and you're a Cold War Conversations listener, obviously listen before you go because there is a little bit of information there and the view there is actually just really nice. It's a beautiful place. But having that history in your head when you visit, it, it's quite amazing. It, it's really tough to imagine um, you know, the Americans on one side, the Berlin Wall over on the banks of the river on the other side. Um, halfway across the bridge, there is a small metal sign on the floor. It says, uh, Deutsche Teilung bis uh, 1989, so German division until 1989. And that's where you know you're really at the border. And then if you cross over the bridge and turn immediately to your right, you can start walking uh, towards one of the Prussian palaces, which is a place called Sicilienhof, which I always think for English visitors is a bit like, okay, we have those. You know, yeah. <laughs> looks like an English country house. Um, but that's arguably where, where the Cold War began. Um, which is um, the place where the Potsdam Conference yeah. took place. Um, and so you can also visit there and go into what was Churchill's office, Stalin's office. Stalin's office used to be Princess Cecilia's, <laughs> which I always find quite funny. Um, and then uh, Truman's Truman's room as well. That's a, that's a great route, actually, you've described to get to Glenica Bridge because I normally just get the bus down or in the past i've I've just got the bus down there from vanse um but that going through where the the leaders were put up i had i'd forgotten about that so that's a great route and also going through that exclave um which i'm struggling to remember the name of i believe it's kleinglinica yes yeah you're right you're right because um, there's like a footbridge, I think, across the uh, the waterway um, there. But that that's a that's a brilliant route. I mean, I did that route in 1990 after the border had opened, and I walked along the side of where the wall was next to the whatever the big lake is there. That, that... Mm-hmm. Um, yes, not the Van yeah. Yes. Yeah, I can't remember what it is. But anyway, I, I walked into Potsdam and there was like this weird little settlement of wooden log cabins, which was apparently called the Russian Colony. And then I went further into Potsdam and some of the houses were empty and they had squatters in and things like that. And um, it was it was really interesting because it was obviously just not that long. I think it was March 90 I was there. So it was not not long after the 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 wall had. I've got some photos that I should um, dig out um, of that. But um, no, that's a that's a great a great route. I'm, next time I go to Berlin, I'm going to do that because um, I mean one of the trips that I quite enjoy is going to Vansay and then getting the ferry across to Kladau, yes. um, and then getting the bus there back to like Olympic Stadium. Yeah. Um, and you get a good, you know, you go past the um, Air Force Museum, which used to be RAF Gatow there, which I've yet to visit. That's another one. You see, I've still got so many places to go to. And you're adding to the list by the minute, Johnny. I've never been to Gatow. Never been to Gatow either. I would like to. Um, well, tell you what I can do, because if anyone's listening to this and thinking, oh, I would like to do that. Um I am already working on um, 
I'm going to pick a different name for it, but it's basically like a super Cold War nerds list of places to visit in Berlin like this. So by the time you're listening to this, it should be online. Um, it's a list of, at the moment, around 70 different places where you can visit. It's only a paragraph or so on each, but perhaps more interestingly uh, for most people is I'm putting it all onto a custom Google map so you can go and see exactly where these places are, um, figure out perhaps how difficult or, or easy they are to go to, but also as much as I would love you to come to Berlin and, and book me and go on a tour, um, you know, my time, your time, money, it's all a limited resource. And you might want to go and do these things yourself and build your own little walk. And, um, um, and let's see if uh, I could even do a, a smaller post just about the walk that we just talked about so people can see um, where uh, uh, Stalin, Truman and Churchill were as well in their, in their houses, which like regular people live in today, which is just yeah weird to me. RIP to the people who have to have a sign saying Stalin lived here on their house. You know, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Well, I always think it's weird about, I mean, we were going to talk about Berlin further afield, but I mean, the, the Wald Siedlung, that estate. I mean, there's people living in the houses that Honecker and Ulbricht et al. were, were in as well. I think they're used by a hospital now. Yeah, I think some of them are. I think it's like a senior citizen's... Um, that's a place that's on my list as well. Uh, I'll be heading out to the Waldsiedlung um, in June of this year. Uh, that will be my first time there. I've been, I've been out to Wandlitz itself before, but uh, just to go swimming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Did you listen to my, you may have listened to my episode with the guy that lived in Burnau. Um I have. It was too. too yeah, it's the one, and it was like living in the Stasi town because apparently it had the highest yeah. number of Stasi employees because of the of the leadership being in uh, close vicinity there. It's, if people want to f- look at, let's say, remains of the where the Allied occupation forces were in Berlin, yeah. where would you? recommend there and i'm hoping you're going to include any of these in the in the map as well because i think you did a really neat video of some french cinema in the former french sector and where the (laughs) barrack where the french army barracks were yeah yeah so that's what i was going to start with um that i will be honest that's for the true nerds because that is um i loved it going there i really did because i've been passed on a bus a few times like taking taking tourists here and there um so I've always wanted to go out and look at it. Uh, the cinema is called uh, Leglon, which I believe means like the little eagle. I don't, I don't speak French. And that was built in the 1950s, I think, or the 60s. And, and it's got a really just very like, yeah, Cold War era prestige design, but it's covered in graffiti. It's, it's, I think, protected and owned by the government, but it's unclear what they're doing with it. And that sits right next to these, these walls where the present day German military barracks are, the Bundeswehr. Um, and it was, you know, Wehrmacht barracks and and um, and so on before that. But um, during the uh, during the Cold War, during the days of divided Berlin, that's where uh, French soldiers were. So they named it uh, Quartier Napoleon. Which you would, of course, they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And I think you know, um, <laughs> defeating Napoleon was was such a such a great moment for for Prussia, right, like two hundred years ago. That I think, yeah, the French, the French didn't miss a beat when they were like, no, no, we'll name it after him. Um, and so you can go right up to the door of that. You can go right up outside, and depending on how um, 
confident you are. You can just ask someone if you could go walk around inside. But the architecture is, um, and I don't know this for a fact, but it looks certainly older uh, than the than the uh, Cold War period. To be honest, there's not much off the top of my head I could say where you can visit, say, former barracks. You can see where the buildings used to be, and a few of them will be on my map. But um, as you can imagine, these have mostly been um, um, repurposed. There was one thing. Ah, the defining bit of West Berlin Cold War architecture has to be the original Checkpoint Charlie, uh, which you can see. Uh, so it's confusingly not at Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, it is at the Allied Museum, which is in um, a West Berlin district called Dahlem. It's a little bit difficult to get to. Uh, it's definitely not in the center of town. I say difficult, it just takes time. But honestly, Dahlem's, Dahlem's very very pleasant. Uh, the nearest U-Bahn station is the kitschiest thing. It's made to look like a cottage with a thatched roof. And it's a short walk from there. And the Allied Museum is just excellent. So they've got the original Checkpoint Charlie there, which is like a one-story building, quite long. It's a porter cabin, basically. <laughs> but a very historic porter cabin. <laughs> Yes, but it does. It does kind of have that echo of like uh, um, the classroom where I had maths in year nine. Next to that is uh, an original train carriage that the French um, forces used to use uh, to come in and out uh, directly from France to uh, to West Berlin. Uh, there's also a plane there, and plane nerds will will be screaming uh, if it's a DC three or something. I'm I think it's one of the ones used in the Berlin airlift, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and so you can go sit sit up in the plane, and honestly, you become like an, an eight year old as soon as you can sit in a cockpit. I saw you driving a tank the other day. You did. That was <laughs> just brilliant. That was just brilliant. Um, something I've I've always wanted to do. I got told off for going too fast. <laughs> That's what you want. Yeah. Uh, uh, you don't want to drive a tank politely. Um, One of the things that I quite like in the Allied Museum is they've got a section of the spy tunnel. Uh, that was Operation Gold, which was this tunnel that the Americans built from the American sector into what was then the well the Soviet zone, um, and they managed to access the main telephone lines between the Soviet headquarters, and they were listening in on this for quite some time. However, the tunnel had already been betrayed by a British double agent, but the Soviets didn't let their commanders know that the line that this line the phone lines are being listened into because they didn't want to reveal that they had a spy at the heart of british intelligence um it's a great story i've got an episode on it and i will um add that to the episode so i've got an episode about everything virtually you have i didn't know that you had an episode about yeah. that so yeah i will definitely look it up uh george blake that's correct it, yeah right yeah and, and he managed to escape from wormwood scrubs into I was not going to spoil the story. Oh, sorry. We did, <laughs> well. Right. I've got I've got a I've got an episode on George Blake and one on Operation Gold. Fantastic. Um, my favorite thing in that museum is this is very early Cold War, but it's ba it basically looks like a white handkerchief, and it's a um, it's an original mini parachute made by um, uh, an American pilot named Gail Halverson. This is one of my favorite stories to tell people. And so in 1948, the Soviets have 
blockade of Berlin, relations between the two sides are at an all-time low. And the um, Western Allies, of course, they start to fly everything in uh, uh, during the airlift. Eventually lasts 11 months, right? Um, it's a great story in and of itself. It's a story that the West are always happy to tell because it shows how much they cared. And, uh, uh, and it really kind of put this stamp on the fact that they were going to keep West Berlin no matter what. And that's fine. But the point I like to bring up when I tell the story is, you know, a lot of those planes coming over were, were British and American, British and American pilots. Um, there's others as well, but the US and the UK had been flying a lot of planes over Berlin in the, in the 1940s, only a few years before, right? And um, it's something that I think in Britain we don't look back at critically enough um, is something like the firebombing of Hamburg, right? Where the express intent was to blow roofs off of buildings, then drop firebombs inside and and cause terror, kill people as they slept. You know, we tend to forget that that was, that was part of the war. And I'm not trying to cast cast some judgment um, um, uh, on this point, but I just think it's important to remember it. So I like to think of a kid in West Berlin in 1948 who sees a little parachute dropping down, dropped by an American pilot, filled with sweets. And like, I mean, a kid in West Berlin has probably, probably had, at this point, a terrible life. Right? I think it's fair to say. And like, sweets being dropped from the sky, it's got to be the best thing that's ever happened. So they go home. They take the silver package back home and they're like, look what the Americans dropped for me. And I then think of the parents and grandparents and whoever else, the adults, who, who at that point they might think, okay, I'm happy I'm on this side. And, and the perception of the Western allies starts to change in people's minds. Um, it's maybe a bit romanticized, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's just an image that's kind of come to my mind over the years. And, and Gail Halverson seems to be a, an absolutely lovely man. He would come back to Berlin and he had a kind of, he had fans, you know, and he would come and talk to people and sign stuff and so on. He lived until he was over a hundred. He only died a couple of years ago. And, uh, it's like you say at the beginning of your podcasts, right? Like, you know, you're trying to keep this history alive because it's all, you, Cold War history is interesting because it's so recent, because we can talk to people who experienced it. But in 20 years, that's, that's going to be far less the case. And in, and in 50 years, it probably won't be the case at all. And so, well, you've got a fan on your show. I think it's fantastic what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it's exactly the reason, you know, but these stories are, are being lost. And I was lucky enough to interview Gail Halverson when he was 98. So there is an episode. You see, I told you I had episodes <laughs> for everything. I thought I listened to everything. Um, no, there's a girl house one. I must admit, the audio on that isn't great because he, I had to interview him and he had it on speaker so his family could hear it and so there was a bit of echo on it. But he, oh, he has some great descriptions of his experiences and of narrowly hitting a Soviet fighter plane while he was in the air corridor when it just suddenly appeared out of the cloud. Um, so some some great stories there. So yeah, Allied Museum, definitely a must. What other museums would you recommend that are predominantly Cold War? Yes. So um, again, looking into the East at this point, there's kind of three things that will crop up if you start Googling that. There's the, the new Cold War Museum, uh, which is like this multimedia experience. I have not yet been the reviews have thus far not been kind. So uh, it's it's not high on my list at the moment. Uh, there's the DDR Museum, which is very conveniently located. It's next to Museum Island. Um, 
I always say it's kind of, it, it is history for beginners. If you're here for, with a family, they can get an idea of what life in East Germany was like. The museum was criticized for a long time because it didn't really talk about the Stasi. And I don't think you can have East German history without the Stasi. Uh, but they did update that, I mean, several years ago now. And um, they've just had a refit because of that, that giant uh, aquarium <laughs> that, that burst and flooded their museum. But for me, the best museum about East German history in Berlin has a terrible name. It is the Museum in the Kulturbrauerei. It's a state-run museum. It is very, very, very good. And I really wish I could get the hands on the marketing department and say, please rename this the East German History Museum or the Life in East Germany Museum or something, because the name really betrays just how good the museum is. Um, you can you can see a trabi in there, one of not just a trabi, but one of the ones with the tent on top. So, oh, the camping one, brilliant! Exactly. So you can get the full East German holiday experience in there. Um, it's in. Uh, it's going to give you a really great overview of life in East Germany, and you know the good and the bad parts of that, and just how different it was, and how different it is from today. Um, it's also in an excellent part of town for food, drink, whatever, including Knopke's Imbiss which is East Berlin's most famous Kovost stand. So it's underneath um, it's underneath the U-Bahn lines, the U2 line. Um, and so you can quite easily, because you've got to tick the Kovost box when you're here. Um, ideally, you would also get some quite grumpy service when you order your Kovost. That's, that's going to be perfect. And so, yeah, Kovost and museum in the Kulturbrauerei. So culture brewery would be the uh, direct translation, but it's a proper. Yeah, I've, I've like. not been to see that. It's definitely on my list because I have heard rave reviews yeah. about that, and you've just affirmed that. Um, I guess as far as museums, the one that we we can't avoid is well, there's two that I think you have to see, but just to get an idea of East Germany and the security system and the surveillance that the population was under. And and the obvious one is the Stasi Museum at Normannenstrasse. Yes. And the one which I found really powerful, well, I found the Stasi Museum quite powerful, but um, is Hohenschernhausen, which was the Stasi Remand prison. Yes. Which is a little bit out of the way, not the easiest to get to, but 100% worth a visit because... If you're lucky, you will get an English-speaking tour guide who was actually incarcerated in there, yes. which, you know, to actually be taken around by somebody who was imprisoned in there is phenomenal. Yes, it's a very, it's a very moving experience. And I think however much you think you know about the Stasi, how much you know about their prisons, how it worked, to be in the room, to, to be brought into a room where someone said, I was interrogated in here be it several times a day or once a month, but whatever, you know, over a period of months, years, uh, and to really listen to how the system worked, how they how they kind of uh, belittled people, how they attacked them uh, psychologically as opposed to physically, um, how they messed with their minds a little bit, right? Putting in the same curtains in their cells that they would have had in their, in their um, living room at home, things like that. Um, yeah, very, very... Very difficult, very moving experience, and and just uh, yeah, another another chance to actually meet living history. 
so not all of the guides there, as you mentioned, are um, uh, are former are former inmates. Some of them are academics as well. If you are lucky enough to speak German or to understand a fair bit, uh, you're more likely to get a former inmate on a on a German tour. Uh, and I should say the only way to visit, at least the last time I checked, was to do a tour. Um, you mentioned as well the Stasi Museum at Normannenstrasse, um, another like very well put together museum, like you say, in the old headquarters. The standout part is Erich Mielke's office. Uh, so, so Mielke was the head of the Stasi, and um, his office looks as it did when he left it in 1989. He just got up and went. Even his bathrooms there, and I mean, it, it's it is weird. It is as though, yeah, he 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 left yesterday. Yeah, and I, I remember asking um asking uh someone to to do with the museum last time I was there. I was being led through a tour there, and um I was like, oh god, these like these radios and things are really old school in Milka's office. What's the deal? And, and they were like, oh yeah, Milka was very old school, right? He's an old man, and so he got his his radio and his speaker system in the sixties, and he liked it, and he kept that for twenty years in here. So. I had this idea that East Germany was a bit further behind than it really was because, you know, you think of East German design, you think of a lot of like orange plastic and modern designs and things. Uh, but mm. Milko was rocking some uh, some vintage kit uh, in there. And yeah, so it's a kind of, it's a mix of 80s East Germany, like blue carpets and things. And um, um, yeah, his old his old radios and things. And it's just, it's so strange. I mean, for me, Milko was the one who was really running East Germany, right? And it's kind of like with no ceremony in there. It's not. It's not even like a very grand office. It's not. It looks like IKEA has furnished it. Yeah, in 1992 or something. It's all this very pale wood uh, conference table and 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 chairs. It, it's not ornate in any way. It's very functional. I think one one of the things that I found the most interesting is probably it is the wrong word, but. Mm. The, one of the weirdest things is how they captured the smell of individuals. Oh gosh, yeah. By um, you, you, what you did is you sat on when you were interrogated. You sat on a chair, and on the chair they'd have a cloth. Yeah. And they would then take that away and put it inside a jar and label it and file it, so that if you ran off or escaped they'd be able to set the dogs on. So so imagine you're sat on a chair which has a kind of cushion, let's say, on it, uh, like a regular cushion chair, and they would make you sit on your hands. And then beneath the cushion, that's where the bit of cloth is. And yeah, the smell jars, they were called. Yeah, thousands and thousands of those are found. After the wall came down, it, it shows you the increasing paranoia of the of the Stasi and of, of Mielke. And I think, not that I'm a, a, an expert really, but I think that paranoia is a kind of hallmark of of dictatorships because your competition is always going to be slightly hidden in a dictatorship because you're not supposed to have competition. And so you have to start suspecting people and this is just just a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I think s smell is one thing that I really noticed at Hohenschernhausen was it had that institutional smell of cleaning fluid and stuff like that and i found that you know i'm not you know it, it's as though it permeated even up to today that smell was still there 
it's funny you mention it. There's a friend of mine who grew up in uh, in East Berlin. Um, I'm in my mid thirties. He's only a couple of years older than me, but he said, uh, in his opinion, in in the East, they it's not like they had different kinds of cleaner you could go and buy. Like you know, so in all of these big kind of public institution buildings, they they all use the same one. So he 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 once joked to me that. Um, Every school in East Germany had the same layout, and every school smelled the same. Like if he went to his friend's school, he wouldn't know exactly where he was, but it would be very unsettling because it was obviously completely somewhere that was completely different. So I wonder for you and I stepping in there, like yeah, you notice this kind of as, uh, as you said, like institutional, clinical kind of smell. Uh, I wonder for an East German, maybe it would also you know smell like the Plattenbau they lived in when they cleaned the floors every Wednesday or something. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can only I yeah. can only guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, incredible, incredible. I mean, one place we haven't talked about um, that I always recommend for people to go and visit in Berlin if they've got the time is the uh, Monument to the Socialists, which isn't that far from the Stasi Museum. It's Friedrichsfelder Cemetery, and it's where the uh, communist leaders were buried. So you'll find Ernst Taumann, Ulbricht, uh, Piet, um, Grotevoll, uh, they're all there, Rosa Luxemburg, um, and there used to be regular ceremonies there. I think Marcus Wolf is buried there, not in the main section, but in a side section. Um, I think Klaus Fuchs might be buried there as well, the Atom Spy, um, although I could be wrong about that, but it's certainly got all of the notables of the the pantheon of communist leaders or the um you know the well-known names it, it is sort of like as you put it to my shame i have not yet been and i don't live very far away so i'm, I'm losing tour guide cred here but uh i i um the reason i'm holding off to go there is i would like to uh i'd like to make a video about it and i'm hoping to go so so if we can let people see behind the uh the special screen of production we're recording in April, and I would like to go very soon at the beginning of May. So I want to go and scope it out on the 1st of May, and ideally the 8th and or 9th of May as well, which are, of course, quite important dates in uh, communist history. And just uh, see what I see, see who I meet. Uh, when I do these uh, videos, as, as you've seen, I go all around town, kind of far-flung places. And actually, one of the most unexpected and nicest things about it is uh, because I'm self-employed, I can go there at uh, you know middle of the day, weekday times, and I actually end up meeting quite a lot of um, retirees, and uh, they're the people with stories to tell. Yeah, and of course, I'm walking around with essentially a selfie stick with a giant furry ball on it, which is the microphone. So people either pretend they haven't seen you because they're embarrassed for you, or they say, oh, what are you doing? And honestly, when you tell them, people's faces light up. And uh, I, I just, I don't want to sound like I'm singing my own praises, but it's just been such a nice surprise. And something like surprises would be just totally unexpected. And, um, you know, Berlin's not famous within Germany for its warm and welcoming locals. And having been here over a decade, having learned the language, and now just walking around talking to myself, essentially, I've started to meet the kinds of people I would I would never have met before, and um, yeah, part of that's luck. Part of that's a bit of confidence. Confidence is what you call stupidity when it works, right? 
Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information